As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. I'm speaking today with Dr. Given Kachepa. Dr. Kachepa is currently a dentist and the owner of Inwood Dental in North Dallas. He received his DDS from Texas A&M University, Baylor College of Dentistry in Dallas, and a BA in biology here at UNT. Receiving a doctor in dental surgery is an admirable accomplishment for anyone, but clearly an indication of Dr. Kachepa's impressive determination and spirit, given that at the age of 11, he was lured away from his home village, Kalingalinga in Zambia, with the promise of a better life and became a victim of human trafficking here in the United States. First of all, it's an honor to have someone of your caliber on the podcast. You are an inspiration in your efforts to help others suffering a similar fate to the one you experienced as a child. I am absolutely surprised, saddened, and taken by your entire story, and most certainly impressed by the things you have done in response to a tragic situation. Our listeners should know that you testified at a Texas House Committee on Human Trafficking in 2003, appeared on Nightline, have spoken at Harvard Law School, were featured on NPR's The Hidden Faces of Modern Day Slavery, appeared on the cover of Christianity Today, were honored by Teen People magazine for being a teen trying to change the world, are the subject of a book by Q.L. Pierce entitled Given Kachepa, Advocate for Human Trafficking Victims in her Young Heroes series. And you continue to give a multitude of talks and speeches to inform individuals and organizations about human trafficking and to bring awareness to this very, very important topic. Welcome, Dr. Kachepa, and thank you for taking the time from your busy schedule to share your insights with us. Thank you, Susan. I'm very happy to be able to speak with you in regards to human trafficking, and I hope that we can have a good discussion and that whatever I'm able to say, that people will be able to learn something about modern-day slavery and that it continues to happen around the world. And uh, that is the number one reason why I continue to speak out. Uh, even though I'm a dentist now, 
I have my dental clinic in North Dallas, which is really my number one passion. But a way for me to give back to the community and to the world is in my spare time is to be able to take time away from my schedule and be able to speak out on modern day slavery because I, I believe it's something that needs all of our attention. And if we're going to try to change what is happening to a lot of people around the world, then we got to educate as much of the public as we can. And that's why I continue to speak out on this such an important mission, it truly is. And I suppose that when many people think of human trafficking, they think of prostitution. But sadly, there are thousands of people in the United States today that are victims of human labor trafficking, and they're used as modern day slaves, with the state of Texas having the dubious distinction as having the second highest number of victims coming in second only to California. That's tragic. Right. You have quite a story to tell about this, and I suppose the best place to begin is to start with your life before you left Zambia. As I understand it, both of your parents had passed away when you were quite young, and your home village in Zambia was a very poor area, wasn't it? Yes. You know, I grew up in uh, Kalingalinga, which is a small town, uh, or you would call it a shanty town in Zambia. Growing up, I had my mom, I had my dad, I had my six siblings, and uh, we had a great life. We were poor, but I wasn't lacking anything uh, from the standpoint of love from my siblings or love from my parents. And so life was, was, was just like you were a kid that existed in that community. And then in 1992, my mother died. Uh, it was a very sudden death. Uh, she was well one day, at least in my mind, and then they took her to the hospital and she was gone and I never saw her again, so she died very quickly. And then a couple years after that, my father died, and uh, when my dad died, that's when my life became very, very difficult because I quickly had to learn how to survive in this world. And luckily enough, I had my aunt, my mom's sister, who kind of took on the challenge of trying to raise her, her sister's kids. And, and you know, she had six kids, and then uh, there was kids, six kids in my family. And so we moved in with her, and uh, you know, we didn't have much to eat. A very difficult lifestyle at that particular point in time. But she, again, she still loved us and gave us all the stuff that we needed as kids. But we survived, and it was even in that time that I learned about the Zambian Acapella Boys Choir. I started going to, to go sing with, with the choir because a couple of my cousins were singing with the with Zambian Choir. I went and I joined, and I was having a great time uh, with the choir. And then I ended up with the opportunity to come to the United States, and uh, that was a very exciting time. Well, that's when you met Keith Grimes, who ran a faith-based endeavor called TTT, Teaching Teachers to Teach Partners in Education, based in Sherman, Texas. And he enticed you and some other boys from your village with an opportunity to change your life and your family's future. And all you had to do was join his organization's a cappella choir and you could tour across the great United States, right? Yes, I met Mr. Grimes sometime in the, in the 90s. He came to Zambia, I believe, sometime in the 80s. My choir was not the first one to come from Kalingalinga. There were many choirs that came before my choir. When I joined the choir, my particular choir, I did not know about the other groups, really. I was just joining because I 
I was working for ICD. So in the 90s, I met him, and then there was an opportunity that we might be able to come to the United States to sing, to raise funds for schools uh, back home in Zambia, and then that we might be able to get an American education. And uh, through that education, then you can better your life and whatnot. And uh, I was excited about that because uh, what I wanted for me was to be able to help my brothers, to be able to help my sisters, to be able to help my aunt who was helping me at a particular point in time, to be able to help some of the kids in my community. And so when the opportunity came up that we might be able to come to the United States, I, I quickly signed up for it. One of my aunts who has since passed signed all the paperwork because there was some paperwork that we had to sign to be able to, to come. There was a contractual thing that we needed to assign, and so they signed for that. And I quickly got on the plane with a lot of hopes. Uh, you know, when I was coming to the United States, the only thing that I had in my heart or in my mind was that this is a great country because when we were growing up, sometimes even though we didn't have many TVs uh, where I was growing up. Every once in a while, you run into an American show, you know, like a television show that you would watch, like, and then you're like, this must be a great country to be in. And so I was very optimistic about that. And But sadly, as you've known, that a lot of the promises that were made to us were never fulfilled, and we ended up being used as modern-day slaves. You were only 11 years old at the time, right? I was. I was actually the youngest in my group. You know, and, and that is one of the things that, that really makes me mad when I think about the whole situation because at that particular age, I should have been in school. The oldest member in our group was, uh, I believe, like around 19 years of age, but the average person was about 14 years of age. And so when you're taking young kids who are coming from very poor communities from around the world, you ought to be able to educate those kids. That did not take place. And my understanding was that I was going to continue to go to school when I came into, into this country. But to be that young and to, to be in a situation that is a trafficking situation is a very traumatizing thing, especially when you're already coming from a very difficult lifestyle. You've lost your parents. You didn't have much growing up. And then now you're being dragged from one situation into another, and in this situation that you thought was going to change everything you know, in your life, and it doesn't end up changing anything. To me, that, that was a, a very hard thing, and that's why even after I was rescued from the choir, I wanted to make sure that I didn't want my life to be defined by what happened to me in the past. I wanted to be able to do something for myself so that I can say that everything that I came here to this country to do, that I was able to achieve that. But modern-day slavery, you know, it, it happens around the world. There's many people that are used in these environments. And we were singing four to seven concerts a day when I was with the, with the choir. Uh, we were traveling around the country. We would sing in schools. We sang in churches. We sang in malls. We sang pretty much in any avenue that you could think of. And most of the times when we would ask about the education that we'd been promised when we were in Zambia, the ministry became very defensive and said that you can't hear sing and you should just focus on that. For being somebody that really wanted to go to school, that was really uh, very difficult for me because I knew that for me, at least, education was going to be able to help my family and my community back home in Zambia. And you got no health care either when you were ill? There was no health care. We, we had a few things. I mean, when I came, I tell people this now, that when I came, I, I didn't have anything in on my back. The, the only thing I had were the clothes that I had. So they told us to leave everything that we had. You know, I didn't have toothpaste. I didn't have um, extra um, shirt or anything like that. The, the only thing I had was uh, what I had on my body. And uh, because we'd been promised that all of that stuff would take place, but there was no health care. In fact, I remember one of the choir members getting sick 
and they didn't want to take him to the hospital because of they, they were afraid of how much it was going to cost if they took him there. But I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that you know the whole thing was just very poorly planned. They didn't put a whole lot of thought into what was going to take place if we actually got here. And when you have uh, young boys, you know, from 11 to about 19 years of age, there's going to be a lot of things that are that are that those boys are going to be needing. And we should have been paid something, but we were never paid. The schools that they promised that they were going to be building back home in Zambia were were never built. My family or, or any of the other family members uh, from the choir never really received anything that would be life-changing. In fact, their lives, some of them, were even worse than, you know, before they came here because now they didn't have somebody there that would be physically there to help them if they needed anything in their families. You know, and, and there were very harsh conditions that being 11 years of age, you know, in that if you complained, about anything they said, they would deport you back home to Zambia. If you questioned anything, basically, uh, about how they were uh, running the ministry or the organization, there was a lot of threats about, if you say anything about that, then we're going to deport you back home to your country. And, uh, you know, I disagreed with a lot of that stuff, and a lot of choir members disagreed with, with a lot of that stuff. And that's why eventually the ministry was uh, dismantled. Now, as I understand it, you lived with the other choir members in a trailer, and you would cook in that trailer, the food that was provided to you, and what would happen when you complained? What did they threaten you with? When we complained, uh, what we had for the gas and everything, the stoves that we use, uh, use the gas. So a lot of times if we complained, then they would go and turn off the gas. And then we were not able to eat anything until, you know, they were, they were not, no longer mad at us. And uh, that was a very difficult thing. And eventually the INS Immigration Services became involved in the whole thing. And then the Labor Department became involved later because they learned about the mistreatment that was taking place with a lot of the boys. And so the ministry started paying us something after you know, about uh, 11 months of us being here in the United States. But even that was not enough to keep us to continue singing in this country because it's just, you know, when you're trying to change your life and then they're paying you about, I think we were getting paid about $900 a month and then we had to pay rent for that. We had to start saving our own money for airline tickets to go back home to Zambia. Uh, you had to buy food uh, without money and clothes. And uh, I think we started going to school. There was a fee for the education that we were getting. So it just wasn't enough money to be able to do anything to make any kind of substantial difference in, in, in our lives. And we, we fought a lot with the ministry. We fought quite a lot because we disagreed a lot of times. And, you know, there were times when we would be at a, at a school and we have to sing. And, you know, one or two boys would say, I'm not going to sing until these things are, are met. And that created a lot of animosity between uh, uh, the ministry and some of the boys. And they wanted to send some of those boys that were voicing their opinions more. They wanted to send them back home to them. And the number one thing that the ministry did was... If you complained about anything, anything uh, whatsoever, they just said, we're going to send you back home to your country. And that was very traumatizing. Well, as I understand it, the organization, the ministry, took in more than a million dollars a year in performances and donations. Yeah, you know, how much they took in, I do not know. What I know is that, you know, they took in quite a lot of money because, we, we, I mean, every place that we signed up, uh, you know, we were asking for love offerings. And sometimes these churches would give money to the ministry. A lot of the uh, families that we were staying with, a lot of them would say, you know, I want to sponsor one or two of these boys and I want to be, be sending in a check uh, every single month. 
Uh, and so some of those people, who, they were doing that. They've been doing that for years, some of them. They were CDs that some of the other choirs from the previous groups had, had uh, recorded. We used to sell those CDs. And so there was a lot of money. And, and the, the thing is, none of the choir, the boys from uh, Zambia ever got any of that money. They were paying our families about $20 a month for the labor that we were doing. But if you think about $20, even though it's in Africa, it's still is, that's not going to change your circumstances. That's not going to change your family tree in any substantial way. You might be able to buy food for a week or so, but it's not going to afford you to build a house for the family and your kids and all the people that you know and care about. Uh, and so to me, that was really the sad thing. I, I don't know what the exact numbers were that they say that uh, uh, the ministry or to, you know, I collected and that they should have reimbursed back uh, to some of the boys. But I know that it was uh, quite substantial. It was quite a lot of money. Can you tell us about Sandy Shepard and others that brought TTT to the attention of the FBI and the Department of Labor? Yeah, Sandy Shepard is my mom. And I've been staying with them now for about 20 years. And Sandy and uh, my dad, Dick Shepard, they had been involved with some of the other choirs uh, from Zambia for many years. And in fact, they were involved with previous other choirs besides my choir. And in fact, I, I didn't even know who they were. But they'd been going back home to Zambia to... They eventually, they became so involved that they, they ended up having relationships with uh, people back home in Zambia. And they voiced their opinion uh, for many years on how uh, the ministry was treating a lot of the boys. But nobody from the ministry wanted to really listen to them. And there, there were a lot of complaints from uh, a lot of many different uh, people that, that complained about how we were being treated. For example, one of the things that the ministry used to do was, if anybody gave you any kind of gift while you were on the road, if they gave you a t-shirt or they gave you money just because they cared about you, when we got back home to the home base, they would pat us down. They would search our clothes to make sure that we didn't have any gifts or anything that we got from anybody. If we had any contact information from any of the families that we were staying with, they would make sure that they collected all that contact information because they didn't want us to be in contact with anybody. So that's very sad in that you cannot make a friend so that if you're bored and you, you just want to talk to somebody that you met while you were on tour, you didn't have that leverage to be able to do that. The shepherds have been great people in my life. They've been great people for the community of Zambia. They built a school called J.O. Chifundo, named after one of the, their friends that donated quite a lot of money when he passed. Uh, his wife and him, I think they talked about that towards the end of his life and said, you know, we want to be able to do something for the kids in the community. So my mom, out of her own time and money and everything, invested a lot of time and they've been able to build a school right there in Kalingalinga. And then my brother's uh, two kids, my nephews, two of my nephews uh, went to that school from the, uh, about the seventh grade all the way to the twelfth grade and they took their exams and everything. So that's been a real difference maker in that community and uh, it's going to continue to be a difference maker for many years to come. And so they've been great people to me because of them. I was able to go to school. I should, when I went to go stay with them, you know, they provided all the help that I would have needed because I didn't have any finances. I didn't have any money when I went to go stay with them. I didn't have a car. I didn't have clothes or anything like that to be able to go to school. I couldn't afford rent because I was underage. And so if they hadn't stepped up and tried to help me uh, in my life, then uh, it would have been a very difficult existence for me. But I'm, I'm glad that they stood up, that uh, we were able to have a relationship and uh, I'm, I'm glad about that. Really admirable people. I saw a picture that just touched my heart from your graduation from dental school where they carried the pictures of your biological parents with them at the ceremony. Yes, that was very symbolic. They've done a lot of work in 
if it wasn't for them, I would not have graduated from dental school because that required a lot of work and effort and uh, money. There were many scholarships that we applied for when I was in going to college. When I needed stuff for school, when I was in dental school, when I was in college, or when I needed somebody to just kind of listen and some of the challenges that I was going through, they were there to uh, be able to help me out with a lot of that stuff. So I'm really glad about that. When you went to live with them, I know you, you enrolled in eighth grade, and then you went on to Grapevine High School. And I find it really extremely brave that as a high schooler, you came forward and talked about your experience. And I know a lot of high schoolers, they're more concerned about maybe that they've got the right clothes and that their friends are the right group or whatever. But you were extremely brave in that you realized that other people were going through what you went through and you started speaking publicly at that time, right? How old were you when you first started talking about your experience with human trafficking? About 14, maybe 15 years of age. And, you know, when they, wow. when they, when they approached me to, to start talking about uh, modern-day slavery, I hadn't thought about it in, in that regard. You know, somebody just came, I think it was somebody that my mom had met at a, at a trafficking conference here in Dallas, and they said, you know, uh, we would love for your son to come and testify because at that particular point in time, they were trying to pass a, an anti-trafficking law in the, in the state of Texas. And I didn't think anything about it. I just said, ah, sure, I, what's wrong with that? I just go out there and tell my story, my experience. And, and uh, you know, that's one of the things that when I look back now, I'm proud about. But some people have kind of gone back and said, uh, you started speaking out because you wanted to make a lot of money and people have paid you. For most of the speeches that I've done, I've never been paid anything. I just speak out just because I speak out. When I was in high school, 15, uh, 15 or 14 years of age, when that first person asked me to speak out, I wasn't thinking about what kind of money I was going to make. It was just something that they asked me to do, and I wanted to go out there and do it, and I, and I did it. And from that, we've had many other people that have just, they've asked us to speak out about modern-day slavery or to give my testimony about what happened to me. And, you know, it still remains a passion of mine that, that I speak out and that it doesn't happen to somebody else coming behind me. You know, when I think about a lot of the kids in Africa that are growing up without a mother or without a father or they have a lot of difficult situations in their lives, those are the people that I care about. Those are the people that I want to help. If nobody is there to kind of stand up for them that it doesn't, the same thing doesn't happen to them, then it's going to continue. And that's, that's why I continue to speak out about that. Well, I can see that a different person, having been treated as you were, might have gone down an entirely different road in a negative direction. But you have gone absolutely down a road full of light in a very positive direction. When you were in high school, you had the words focus, determination, and perseverance posted in your bedroom. Why'd you do that? What did those words mean to you? Uh, you know, I mean, like you said, I mean, when you've been through a lot in life, you can turn it, you can turn it into a negative or you can turn it into a positive. I choose to turn my life into a positive. I don't want to be somebody that's, you know, bitter or anything like that. I want to be somebody that's, you know, is a positive person and that can try to make a difference in other people's lives. The only way that I've had my life now and that uh, I have this life that I have and that I enjoy is because other people stood up for me. And if I don't stand up for the next generation of young men and women and try to show them a, a different way of living life and doing things in life, I try not to put that on somebody else's plate. And I try to work hard for my family back home in Zambia, my aunt that I have that took care of me when I was a little boy, my two sisters, my two brothers. I have a lot of 
uh, nieces and nephews. And I realized that life is, is hard and difficult for everybody. And for me, the only way that I could give back is by trying to be a good example uh, for my nephews, my nieces, my sisters, my brothers. And if maybe if they can have somebody to emulate and they, they could say, you know, look at this person that grew up in the same community that we grew up, but look at what he's been able to achieve. And to me, that is something that, that I keep in my mind. And, and I try, even to this day, I try not to you know, try to live a vulnerable life. You know, we all have our failures here and there and whatnot. But, you know, when you hit your failures, you pick yourself up and you keep going. And until your whatever, you know, your, your goals and whatever your purpose in life were, and you've achieved those. And uh, for me, that's what I'm going to continue to do is to, I try to be a positive influence for, for other kids uh, around around the world that uh, they could they too can overcome uh, whatever uh, situations that they've been given. I mean, when you think about somebody like me who you know grew up in probably one of the poorest communities in the world. I mean, if you look at Kalingaliga, it's a very poor, very poor town. And then to lose your parents at, at such a young age, to have we didn't have any kind of assets in my family that I could lean on. Uh, the only thing that I had was hope. And, and But I realized that, you know, for me to achieve what I wanted to achieve was I had to work hard. And, you know, kind of the blessing that came from uh, losing my parents is that when that love and care was taken away from me, I didn't have anybody that I could run to. And, you know, if my shoes were, you know, if I didn't have shoes, I didn't have anybody that I could run to and say, you know, I need new shoes. I just kind of had to figure it out myself and try to do that. And uh, even though my aunt was there, but, it, you know, it, it, she loves you and everything, but it, it's still a little bit different. And so for me, it's very difficult that I continue to work hard and try to set a good example for our kids. Well, you certainly are, and you certainly have. You're a very impressive gentleman. When you talk to people about labor trafficking, what is it that you want them to know? I want them to know that human trafficking is still happening around the world and that it's not confined to race like it was in the past. I mean, when you think about world slavery, it was more confined to like what you look like and, and whatnot. But modern day slavery really can happen to anybody. You can you could be a woman, you could be a man, uh, you can happen to anybody from any socioeconomic status, and uh, it's taking place around the world. And the only way that we change that is by trying to educate the public. You know, a lot of times when I tell people about my situation, a lot of times people think that. And I was trafficked in, in Africa, and I was used there, and I came here uh, as a refugee in this country. And a lot of them are very shocked when I tell them, no, 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 I was, I was actually trafficked here in the United States, and right here in Dallas. And people don't understand that. And until people begin to understand that, then it's going to be very difficult for us to, to change that. I mean, there are even tours here in Dallas that you can take that show you about some of the areas where trafficking is happening. Yes, there's a lot of sex trafficking that happens, but there's also a lot of labor trafficking that uh, people may not know about. And if we continue to educate the public about all these issues, then uh, we can make real change for everybody in society. You know, life is hard for everybody. Uh, if somebody is using another human being for their own gain, then that is not correct. That is something that we all should voice our opinion so that that is not taking place in society. I was shocked to read about all of the places where labor trafficking happens in restaurants, nail salons, agricultural workers, factory workers, cleaning homes. I can see why it's so important to make people aware of this. I was listening to an NPR interview that you gave, 
And there was a person that called in at the time. He was a counselor. And he said that he was working with a young man from China who was working, forced to work at a restaurant without pay. And when he complained, they threatened to hurt his family in China. And the counselor himself was intimidated by that because he didn't know what to do. He didn't want to report anything and be responsible for this young man's family. So, I mean, what do you think that people should do? If I go into a nail salon, how do I know what's going on there? Well, you know, it's very hard. This is why we're talking about this, because recognizing victims of human trafficking is different than recognizing uh, old slavery. For example, in old slavery, yes, there was a lot of mental abuse and there was also a lot of physical abuse that took place. You could walk up to somebody's farm and you'd be able to tell that that person is being used as a slave or uh, whatever the situation may be. With modern-day slavery, it's more a mental situation, right? In fact, a lot of people ask me a lot of times that, you know, when you were staying in Sherman, Texas, did they have you locked up? Did they have you changed? Could you not leave this place? And, and why couldn't you leave there? And I tell them, no, we were not locked up. We, we were not in chains. We didn't have any of that stuff. But it was the psychological abuse that we, we received in that, you know, they, they used to tell us, you know, if you run away, nobody's going to want to help you because, you you know, who's going to want to help you? You're from a foreign country. You don't have anything. Who's going to want to help you? And so we started believing that. We said, if we go to the police, how are they... What are they going to, how are they going to believe us over their fellow Americans? You know, what am I going to tell them that it is taking place? So, yes, could you walk up to the home base and the gates were wide open? And why couldn't I just pick up and carry my bag out and walk out? Well, part of the reason was that. Part of the reason is that they kept our passports. So if you just walk out and you have, any, you have no documentation, where are you going to go? Who are you going to approach? And so that is a big part of modern day slavery is that it is a lot of it is very mental, psychological abuse in that, okay, if you run away from this situation, then, you know, I may retaliate and kill your family. That didn't take place in our particular case, but it does happen to a lot of other individuals that are used in, in this situation. And so a lot of them, a lot of these victims end up building up, they put up a lot of walls, they put up a lot of barriers, emotional Areas in that they, they do not know who to trust. A lot of times you just have to be persistent. If you think if you think something is wrong and your instincts are telling you that something just does not feel right, it likely there is something going on. And the only way that you gain that person's trust is by slowly but surely maybe being very gentle but beginning to know about them, talking to them and trying to understand who they are and how they came to be in that particular situation. And then sometimes after you've been persistent and you may actually get somewhere where they, they actually begin to open up because a lot of these people, they, they do not know who to trust. They may be in a foreign country. They may speak a different language. There's a myriad of things that you kind of have to, to cross. And the way we get through that is by educating people to the American public to let them know that it, this is not just going to be a black and white thing that you can walk out to someone and say, Oh, they're modern-day slave. No, it's, it's very difficult to tell, and that, that's part of the reason why we have to continue to educate. Well, your explanation about the psychological manipulation is so powerful, and I, I have to say it just makes me feel angry and sad to think how simple it would be to psychologically manipulate an 11 or 12 year old child who's away from their family and in a different country and even speaking a different language. Did you speak English when you first came here? 
Uh, <laughs> I spoke uh, I spoke a little bit, but not uh, enough to be able to converse with somebody for a long time. You know, I, if I was speaking to somebody, kind of like what my siblings do now, when they talk to my parents here, they just kind of say a lot of yeses and yes and yes and yes and yes, <laughs> yeah. yes, and yes to everything. <laughs> and uh, and uh, certainly that was the, um, the level of my English uh, training at that particular point in time. That's something that you have to pick up, and it takes a long time of being in the country, learning the culture, learning the people, and how they communicate, and all of that. And, you know, yeah, certainly when you're 11 years of age, and you, you can't speak the language, and you're in a trafficking situation, it's going to be very hard to, to speak out. But not just 11 years of age, even adults who are coming from uh, uh, foreign countries, a lot, you know, a lot of them still don't speak English. And some of them can even be in this country for 16 years. But they've not been to school. They, they've not gone to any kind of distance learning. If they go to a distance learning thing, it may cost money. And so a lot of them cannot afford. And so how are they going to communicate with anybody to actually let them know that this is what's taking place? Or who are they going to trust? Right? Who are they going to trust? So how, how can somebody just kind of walk up to somebody and say, you know, I think this is taking place and, you know, can you tell me about what's going on? They're going to be very defensive. And so that's why we have to continue educating the public about this problem. In a description for an OLLI course that you offered that was unfortunately canceled due to the COVID-19 restrictions, you reported that there are an estimated 27 million people being used around the world as modern-day slaves today, including 14,500 to 17,500 trafficked into the United States each year year each year that boggles my mind that's uh yeah that's a big number yes they, they're in fact these are figures that have been put out by experts in the in the field they're in fact there are more slaves alive today than at any other time in human history what yes are you serious i'm yes. shocked yes. i am absolutely stunned by what yes. you just said yes there are more people being used today around the globe as modern-day slaves that at any other time in human history. That's appalling. Yes, that is something that a lot of people don't understand. Yes, there's about 14,000 people that are trafficked in this country every year. And so what we can do about it, yes, is to educate, you know, to enact laws that are going to be, to be very strict on traffickers. And we have laws and we have a trafficker and they get convicted with a violation of uh, human rights, then there's very harsh punishments for that stuff. And uh, we cannot let that continue in society because if it continues, then we have a broken society. And that, that is not something that I, I would want to participate in. Me neither. Do you see that there is a growing awareness of this situation? Or do you think most people are ignorant to it? There's been a lot of progress that has been made. I would be ignorant to say that there hasn't been a lot of uh, progress that has been made. When we first started speaking out, for example, a lot of people didn't even know what the term human trafficking was. I don't think there was even a definition for that word. And now I think generally, if you ask, you know, one out of 10 people, most people may probably know what the term is, but whether they know the actual, you know, how bad the situation is, 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 um, is still undetermined. Uh, there's been a lot of people that have done great work in this regard. There's been a lot of them, like uh, Kevin Bales, who we've worked with for many years. He's written books on uh, modern day trafficking. There's been other organizations like Read the Slaves that's done a lot, tremendous amount of work out of Washington, D.C. We've collaborated on some work together with them. And so if I was to sit here and say that there hasn't been progress that has been made, I, I would be lying. Uh, but is there still a lot of work that needs to be done? Yes, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. 
What message do you have for victims of human trafficking if they should, by some grace, hear this podcast? Uh, is that people care. There's a lot of caring people out there. The average American is a, is a good person. And if somebody is genuinely trying to help you, you know, believe them. They're not trying to take advantage of you because a lot of these victims, when they're in that situation, they think every person that comes around them is somehow trying to take advantage of them because they've been so traumatized. They do not know who to trust. There's help out there. There's, uh, there's government agencies uh, you can call. There's, uh, I think there's a, a 1-800 number like here in the state of Texas that you can call uh, if you're in a trafficking situation. There are some visas, uh, trafficking visas that have come out. So if somebody's can prove that they were a trafficking victim, uh, they can apply for that, which can allow them to stay here in the United States for a certain amount of time. And then if, if they want to make an adjustment to their situation in their status later, they can, they can do that. Because what that does is it, it keeps them in this country for a period of time. And then if they decide to go home and do whatever it is that they want to do with their lives, then they can do that. All of these laws were enacted, I think they've been in the last 15 years, in the same visa that I ended up getting, which allowed me to stay in this country and later get my residency and then become a citizen. And then because of that, I was able to go to school. But before that, there was no laws. There was no visas. There was nothing like that that would allow a victim of human trafficking to use those things to try to better their lives. And, and because of a lot of people that have put in a lot of work, over many years, we do have some of those support systems in place for victims of uh, human trafficking. And I hope if anybody's listening to this and they think they've been in a situation that is a trafficking situation, call somebody in the, in the government. Somebody in the government asks them, ask them about trafficking resources that they may have, and somebody should know about that because uh, there's been a lot of work that's been done and it's out there to try to help the victims. What message would you like to give the listener? What message would you like to leave the listeners with regarding human trafficking? Would it be that? Would it be to notify someone if they suspect something? Yeah, notify somebody. You know, if you suspect something, uh, notify somebody. Pick up a book, read about modern day slavery in the United States. They can look up. There's a gentleman, again, that I've worked with. His name is Kevin Bales. He's, he's written several books on this topic. Go to, you know, like a website, like previous slaves that I've already mentioned. Go to that website and learn about these things. Once you pick up a book and you, you read and you learn, and then you can identify a lot of the things. But realize that there are still a lot of people out there that are still being used as modern-day slaves. And the only way that we're going to tackle this issue is uh, if we're all educated about it and we do it together. Because one person just doing their work on their own, it'd be very difficult to try to uh, check out the problem. You had an amazing quote in UNT's Texas Monthly Magazine, and it says this, I am going to continue to tell my story as long as I have breath in my lungs or until this does not happen to another boy coming from Africa. The world is very lucky to have you, Dr. Kachepa, and I cannot thank you enough for joining us. Well, I'm lucky to be alive. And the only way that I could ever give back to society, I wouldn't say the world is lucky to, to have me in it. I am lucky to be in the world that has such great people in it that have been willing to stand up for me, a child from nothing to something. And for me, for as long as I'm alive, and as long as God has blessed me with a life, I will always continue to fight for injustice in the world 
in regards to uh, human trafficking. Because to me, it breaks my heart to see how many kids in Africa uh, are suffering and to think that somebody would be trying to take advantage of them is just something that I, I don't think I could, I would be comfortable with. I hope to continue to try to make a difference uh, for those young men and women. And I, I'll just continue to speak out. I mean, if we, if we think about Africa as a whole and how much poverty there is in Africa, there, there's so many people that, that suffer from so many different things. Who is going to be there for them to try to change their lives if I'm not there to try to, at least in, in some way, form or fashion, use my voice to make their lives better? People didn't care for me in this country. If people didn't step up for me in this country, I probably would have been dead by now. I've known a lot of my friends in Africa that have died over the years because nobody was there to help them out, to show them that there's a better way to life, right? And I don't want that for other kids. If I could use my voice in any positive way for kids who grew up in the same situation that I grew up in, every single time, for as long as I am, I will always do that. Well, you certainly have. From the time you were 14 years old and up until now. And I thank you, thank you, thank you so much. What an important message you have and what an inspiration you are. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Susan. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, speaking with Dr. Given Kachepa. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ali at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.